Yeah, there was a sign posted uh, on the door of a laboratory in a factory. It said this, it said, theory is when you know everything, but nothing works. Practices, practice is when everything works, but no one knows why. It said in our lab, theory and practice are combined. Nothing works, and no one knows why. <laughs> now, we've been seeing a lot of theory in our recent passages in Luke. Jesus has been talking about spiritual blindness in theory. He's been talking about tax collectors accepted by God in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in theory. He's been talking theoretically that God can rescue even rich people, even though he's declared it impossible. What we haven't really seen much of so far in Luke is practice. We've been left hanging by all these as though they're like the first parts of the story. We want to see this in practice. And here, as we look at Zacchaeus, we get the theory in practice. We see all these principles in action. We see this man, Zacchaeus, who brings all of this together. So our first point is the man who can't see, part two. Have a look with me at verses one to four. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. So here we have Zacchaeus. We're told three things about him in verses 2 and 3. Firstly, that he was a tax collector. Now, a few years ago, a survey was done of the British population uh, to find out the answer to one of life's most pressing questions. What is Britain's most hated profession? Now, there were many contenders, so apologies if there's anybody here who uh, knows people in these categories, but among the top ten were estate agents, bus drivers, telesales reps, and reality TV show contestants. But top of the list by a long way, anyone guess? No, traffic wardens. They were top of the list for the most hated uh, profession, traffic wardens. I mean, how do they sleep at night, some might say. Is it true that they get commissioned depending on how many cars they actually get to uh, find on a day? Is it true that sometimes they Photoshop the times on their photos uh, so that they can get more money? I don't know, I'm not, not passing judgment. But they walk our streets, our streets, on behalf of an oppressive regime known as the local council. Leeds Council, not, not, not Otley, don't worry. Uh, to extort money out of the hard-working, deprived people who've just left their car there for a few moments to buy their starving child some hummus. You know, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Traffic wardens work for them, not for us. Well, in Jesus' day, there were no traffic wardens. You might say, hooray. Well, I imagine parking wasn't such a problem in those days, was it, for most people? Um, but that's not to say that there weren't professions that were hated, and with good reason. The people who work as traffic wardens today probably worked as tax collectors in Jesus' day. And Zacchaeus, the man in our passage today, was not just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. No small fry was Zacchaeus, if you'll pardon the pun. Zacchaeus was a big fry, a chief tax collector, and in the front 
uh, line of Roman occupation. He was the one who took the money from them to fund the occupation. But whereas traffic wardens only take money from us when we've committed a crime, tax collectors took money from all and sundry. Tax collectors extorted money from their fellow Israelites and ripped them off all the time. They were despised by their own people and were utter outcasts. And rightly so, they were collaborators with the Romans, the oppressing force. They were viewed as the lowest of the low. They sold out their friends and their fellow countrymen for pocket money. And Zacchaeus, like I say, was not only just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. He was their boss. No one liked the tax collector, but imagine how they felt towards the man who directed and organised it all. This man must have been hated by the people. But treachery has certain compensations. If you look at verse 2, you see that he was rich, he was minted, he was making a bomb. We've seen that he was a big fry, he was also a fat cat. Sure, his fellow Israelites were suffering, but he was making a small fortune. This guy, to put it lightly, was a scumbag. He was a traitor and a collaborator and a greedy one at that. Zacchaeus, his name, means pure. But he was anything but, wasn't he? His lifestyle shows that he's completely blind to the things of God. Which makes the third thing that we see about him all the more surprising. The third thing that we see is that he was a small man, but he wants to see Jesus. This scumbag of a tax collector wants to see Jesus. Can you see the shock of that? Why he wants to see Jesus, we're not told. What he's heard about Jesus, we're not told. Whether he wants to turn over a new leaf, we're just not told. What we are told is that this man is so desperate to see Jesus that he climbs a tree to do it. I imagine that's not all that dignified, is it? A sycamore tree. The tree itself is sort of viewed as a bit scummy in those days. Sycamore is where we get our word sycophant. It's sort of related the two. It's to do with blackmail and dodgy deals. So we've got a grass in a tree wanting to see Jesus. This is a man who can't see. Ring any bells? Well, last week we heard of the miracle, didn't we? Of a man who can't see, and Jesus opened his eyes. The one who couldn't see now sees. Well, what happens next? Have a look at verses 5 and 6. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Jesus calls Zacchaeus. Just get that, think, let us sink in for a second. Jesus calls Zacchaeus. Unlike the blind man in the previous passage where the blind man is calling out to Jesus, here Jesus calls out to the man who can't see. He calls out to Zacchaeus. He chooses Zacchaeus out of the crowd and calls him down from the tree. Jesus hasn't had to have his arm twisted. He's not had to be bribed or made an offer he couldn't refuse. But he chooses Zacchaeus seemingly at random. But there's nothing random about Jesus, is there? He knows who he's speaking to. He knows who he's calling. He even calls him by name, doesn't he? Perhaps Zacchaeus' reputation precedes him. More likely, though, that this is a demonstration that Jesus knows who he's talking to. He knows what he's letting himself in for. 
Did you know that Jesus knew what he was letting himself in for when he called you? He knew what kind of person you are. He knew the kind of mistakes that you'd make. He knew the way that we'd let him down. But do you know what? He still called you. He still chose you. He still picked you. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. So how does Zacchaeus respond to being called down from the tree? Well, he responds in the same way to the blind man. He rejoices. He's overwhelmed. He hurries down the tree and receives him joyfully. He's over the moon. He's ecstatic. And we're going to see why. But not everyone is so happy. That brings us to our second point, the Pharisee and the tax collector, part two. Have a look at verse seven. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. There are a group who are unhappy about what Jesus is doing. It sounds remarkably similar to when Jesus called Levi, also known as Matthew, the tax collector, uh, in chapter four. Uh, sorry, chapter five. I put it on the back of your notice sheets. You'll see the sort of similarities. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisee and the scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, even when Jesus called Matthew, the people grumbled, didn't they, that he was mixing with sinners, that he was calling the wrong people. The angels may rejoice in heaven when one sinner repents, but not everyone on earth feels the same, do they? But in Jesus' topsy-turvy kingdom that we've been seeing, the repentant tax collectors are in, and the proud Pharisees are out. It was only the last chapter that Jesus was telling them the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We were shocked that the super-religious man was out, and the super-sinner was in. Well, here is that in action, not just in theory, but in action. And the attitude of those around hasn't changed, has it? Jesus told them that parable, chapter 18, verse 9, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And Jesus was spot on, wasn't he? Here's a man coming into the kingdom and they're indignant, they're cross, they're upset. They've already written this man off, haven't they? They're looking down on him. But before we judge them for thinking that way, let's think about ourselves. Do we put people into categories like them? Savable and unsavable? We might not do it out loud, but do we do it in practice? Oh, God could never save them. Do we get upset when we see God save people in other churches that are not ours? When we read reports of churches growing through conversions, does that thrill our hearts? Or does it make us quietly despair? Why them, Lord? Why not us? Why why not my neighbours, my family, my friends? Why grow the church in Lancashire and not Yorkshire? Why grow the church in China and not in the UK? Are we okay with the fact that God saves whomever he wills and that's okay? Even if it's not the people that we want him to? 
We mustn't, mustn't, mustn't become Pharisees about this. God will save his people. We do not get to choose who they are. They might be from people that we don't naturally want to. There might be people from different social classes. They might have habits and problems that we don't. But if you remember right at the end of our passage, God is seeking and saving the lost. So often, don't we? We, we want him to bring us the found, don't we? You know, already sorted, all, all fine. But actually, God is seeking and saving the lost. It's God's prerogative. That's what he's doing. And he will do it. And we see that in our last point. The rich ruler part two. Have a look at eight to ten. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we saw one miracle at the beginning, didn't we? We see a man who couldn't see, made to see. Well, now we get to see an amazing miracle, another one. We get to see a camel pass through the eye of a needle. That's what we get to see here. A camel pass through the eye of a needle. It seemed like only five minutes before Jesus declared that it's more possible for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And now what do we see? Zacchaeus, a rich man, entering the kingdom of heaven. We see a camel pass through the eye of a needle. Do you see that in verse 9? Salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus has entered the kingdom of heaven. He's become a follower of Jesus. How do we know? Well, of course, Jesus says it. That's, in one sense, that's enough, isn't it? But also, we see it in his actions. Do you see there in verse 8 what he's doing? Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Do you remember what happened with the rich young ruler when he was asked to give away his wealth? He went away sad, didn't he? Because he thought his wealth was more important than following Christ. He thought that being rich was more important than being right with God. But here, Zacchaeus voluntarily gives away his wealth without even being asked. He just does it, doesn't he? It's like it's an automatic reaction. He follows Jesus, and this is what follows. But we must be clear, it is what follows. It's not what saves him. Giving away all your stuff does not get you into glory. I remember doing this passage with a group of uh, teenagers on our youth camp uh, a few years ago. And they were from a church background. You know, they, they were coming from different churches. And they almost unanimously came out as saying that the reason that Zacchaeus is saved is that he gave all his stuff away. That seems to be what they thought. After all, isn't that what he told the rich and ruler to do to get eternal life? So they concluded that the way you become a Christian, the way you get right with God, is you give all your stuff away. The funny thing is that they didn't actually know anybody who'd done that. So there must be no Christians around here at all, really, if you think about it. But is that true? Is that what the passage is teaching? That giving all your stuff away makes you a Christian? Well, notice two things. First of all, Jesus doesn't ask him to give away his money. 
Riches are the test of a rich man's heart. We saw that with the uh, rich young ruler. He wouldn't give away his stuff because he saw it more uh, important than following Jesus. Here Zacchaeus gives away his riches without being asked. Zacchaeus got it, if you like. His action shows that he understands who Jesus is. He understands what it means to follow Jesus. Giving away his money, making retribution, was not the reason for his salvation, but the visible evidence of his salvation. It shows that he doesn't see riches, that big stumbling block for the rich. He doesn't see those things as as important now that he has Jesus. Now that he has Jesus, he doesn't have to grasp and fight and play the world's game with money. He's got the most precious thing in the world, Jesus Christ. So Jesus doesn't ask him to give away his stuff. But doing that shows what's happened on the inside. It's the the fruit of salvation rather than the root of salvation. But the second thing we must notice um, to show us that giving away your money isn't the way you get right to God is that the passage clearly shows us that Jesus is the root of his salvation. So in 9 and 10, we're told that salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he's a child of Abraham. Why? Because Jesus sought him and saved him. Who is doing the seeking here? Jesus. Who is doing the saving here? Jesus. Where's the talk of Zacchaeus' works, his charity, his generosity? Well, there's none, is there? Actually, Jesus claims to be the source of Zacchaeus' salvation. The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. So this is what happened. Zacchaeus was lost. Jesus sought him. And Jesus saved him. It's not even that Zacchaeus was really seeking him, really, in a way. I mean, in the passage, Jesus calls him to come down, doesn't he? Hurry and come down. You don't see Jesus by climbing a tree. You see Jesus by him calling you. And answering his call. See, the problem is not how tall we are with seeing Jesus. Some of us are probably quite pleased about that. The problem isn't that we can't see him physically. The problem is that we can't see him spiritually. We need to have our eyes open, just like the man in the story before. Jesus opens a blind man's eyes in both stories. It's Jesus who rescues Zacchaeus from his dishonest life, not Zacchaeus who rescues himself by his good works or even in his seeking after Jesus. It was actually Jesus who was seeking him, seeking and saving the lost, opening the eyes of the blind. So Zacchaeus wants to see and Jesus makes him see just as he did with the blind man in the story before. Zacchaeus is up a tree and Jesus is the one who calls him down. Zacchaeus sees that Jesus is more important than earthly riches, just unlike the rich man in the story before. Zacchaeus is a real-life example of a camel going through the eye of a needle, a repentant tax collector who gets in ahead of the Pharisee. Zacchaeus brings all these ideas together in practice. But why? Why do we get this story? Well, because we need to see the practice, don't we? Not just the theory. 
We need to see that the gospel works. We need to see that God can do it. Zacchaeus is an embodied example of all that we've been talking about over the past few weeks. He's the impossible become possible. A real life miracle. But isn't that true for every person who comes to Christ? The impossible become possible. A real life miracle. I know sometimes that we can think it it's almost seems impossible that we see conversions uh, here in Yorkshire in the 21st century, here at Bethel. That will, be grow, uh, that will grow through people becoming Christians. It just sounds like it would take a miracle. And friends, here's the bizarre encouragement that we see in Zacchaeus. It does take a miracle. It is impossible. But God can do the impossible. Just look at Zacchaeus. He's not the man that you would think that you would call into the kingdom. He's not low-hanging fruit, as some people call it, but a monument or a trophy of grace, as John Bunyan would put it. A man whose dramatic change shows the amazing power of God's grace. A man who didn't just go from sort of okay to sort of okay but a Christian, but a man who went from scumbag to saint. A man who took the teaching of Jesus from theory to practice. And that can sometimes seem impossible, but God does the impossible. And I want to just finish with two quotes from John Bunyan about the world as he saw it as, uh, in his day, when he thought that he was faced with Zacchaeus's all around. He spoke about his hope that God was allowing the people of his day to become like Zacchaeus, that he might save them mightily and make them an example of grace for the church. This is what he wrote. This is the first quote. Alas, we are a company of worn-out Christians. Our moon is on the wane, and we are much more black than white, more dark than light. We shine but a little. Grace, in the most of us, is decayed. But I say, when of these debauched ones, when one of these debauched ones that they are are saved, will be brought in. When these that look more like devils than men shall be converted to Christ, and I believe several of them will, then will Christ be exalted. Grace adored, the word prized, Zion's path better trod, and men in the pursuit of their own salvation, to the amazement of them that are left behind. He's saying, actually, God is calling the people in. Even though the world seems like it's going the opposite way, well, what a trophy to grace that God would bring them in. And then he speaks of the days of Christ with the likes of Zacchaeus. Just before Christ came in the flesh, the world was degenerated as it is now. The generality of the men in Jerusalem uh, were become either high and famous for hypocrisy or filthy base in their life. Now if these devils and diseases, as they possessed men then, were to make way and work for an approaching Christ in person and for the declaring of his power, why may we not think that now, even now also, he is ready to come by his spirit in the gospel to heal many of the debaucheries of our age. I cannot believe that grace will take them all, but there are but few that are saved. But yet, it will take some, even some of the worst of men, and make them blessed ones. But oh, how these ringleaders in vice will then shine in virtue. They will be the very pillars of the church. There will be an ensign in the land. The Lord their God shall save them in that day as their flock of his people. For they shall be as stones of a crown lifted up in an ensign across the land.
That's what happened with Zacchaeus, wasn't he? A ringleader of vice, shining in virtue. Let's pray that God would do the same in our town, in our land, in ourselves, that we would shine like Christ. Let's pray that God would give us that gospel-minded spirit of Bunyan, trusting that God can do the impossible. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the likes of Zacchaeus. Father, we thank you that in Zacchaeus we see that you can do the impossible. Father, give us that gospel-mindedness, that we would believe that that is true. Father, that we wouldn't uh, think that you cannot do the impossible, but Father, we keep trusting in you to seek and save the lost. Father, help us as we continue to reach out to our friends uh, and our neighbours and our family. And Father, pray that you would do that wonderful work of seeking and saving them. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.